You know, I, I, uh, I practiced my sermon last night in our laundry room, and uh, all the clothes got saved. So, um, but, um, I, I, I practice because I want to be prepared, and I don't think that's uh, a bad thing if you, uh, if you don't practice, but I have to. So um, I, I already intended on saying this before Pastor said such nice things about me, but I, I stood a, over there where, where my family sits typically on a Sunday morning just this past week, and I marveled, just like so many of you, at what God did during this time of, of extended baptism. Not at all what any of us expected, but we were so excited to see it happen right before our eyes. And I, what, what really stuck out to me, even beyond the, the lives changed and the, the transformation, was I'm proud to be a part of this church for a lot of reasons. But one of them is um, that I watched our pastor finish the service, and then when it continued on beyond what we had planned, he came down front and was one of the first ones here celebrating the transformations. And then he had to get back in the tank <laughs> and, and got his second set of clothes wet and was willing to do that. But what my favorite part of the service was, was watching him stand back here and let other people get in the tank and baptize these new believers and those that were rededicating. Not every pastor would do that. And, and, and to, for him to trust other people to teach and to, to be a part of the service, to, to step into those roles of ministry, it's empowering, it's encouraging. And I believe that heart that starts at the top and works its way down is part of the reason why God is doing what he's doing at our church. I'm thankful for our pastor and his wife, his family. I have to tell you, I've been excited about this opportunity for, for quite a while. pastor asked me like two months ago, and he gives me so much time to prepare. And I love that because the, the pressure of being ready week in and week out, I don't have that. I, I get a long time to, to pray about this. And one of the things I mentioned last time in February was that there, there are times, especially in a new believer's life, where we will encourage you to read scripture. How many have ever been encouraged? Anybody in this room, somebody told you to read the Bible. How many of you have been told more than 10 times to read your Bible? We do it all the time. And it's not because we don't have anything else to say. You think, well, how do I grow my relationship with Christ? Everybody says, just read your Bible. It's not because it's the easiest thing to say or it's just a natural response. It's the truth. Joe and I talk about scripture a lot because we're, we're nerds together. That's why we're such good friends. But we, we talk about how there's always something new that we can find in Scripture. No matter how many times we've read it, if I've read a book or a story a thousand times, I read it again. I think it was Billy Griffin last Sunday night in our class. He said, no matter how, dig you, how deep you dig, you can dig deeper. When you go into the Word of God, if you're digging into it, if you're studying it, if you're, if you're looking for something, you're going to find something. Because God's right there. His word is living and active. So if you're a new believer and somebody says, read the gospel of John 10 times, do it. Because you're going to see more and more of Jesus. If, you're, if, you're, if you've been saved for, for longer than I've been alive, and, and somebody says, why don't you read this again with me? I've read it a thousand times, read it again. Because no matter how deep you dig, you can always dig deeper. And you can find more. And I say that today because we're going to go to a familiar passage of scripture in Matthew chapter 14. A story that even if you're not a believer... You're, you're probably familiar with to some degree. You've heard the story about Jesus and Peter walking on the water. And my encouragement, my challenge to you today is to dig a little deeper. To pay attention for something you might have missed. To pay atten attention to something that God wants you to, to absorb and apply to your life today. And as I like to do, I want to encourage you to keep two things in mind before we get into the message. These are our Bible study tips that will help you, whether we're talking about today or tomorrow or the next time you read Scripture. The first is this, 
always remember that context is key. That you need to understand the players in the game, you need to understand the setting and what happened before, what happened during, what happened after, because context matters. If we're truly seeking to understand what God is saying, why this story is here and not there, and why we have to read it over and over, we have to understand where it falls in the sequence of events. There were events that took place before, earlier in Matthew 14. There were events that took place after, and a lot of them happened on the same day. Well, that, that affects how I understand this story. And we'll talk about that as we go through this. But keep in mind that context is key. Secondly, when you come across dialogue, as we will today, and you read a conversation between two or more people, pay attention to what is said, especially the questions that are asked. Think about when you were a child or some of you that have children like I do. If you ask your kids a question, you expect what? An answer. See, I just asked you a question and you answered it. I, you don't ask a question just to let it hang out there. The, the, the hypotheticals and the theoreticals, they don't really accomplish a whole lot except to make us think. But if we want to bring about change, we are, ask a question to get an answer. There's a question in our story today, and the answer is there. And we can't stop until we find it. When you are studying Scripture and you read dialogue and there's a question, I promise you the answer is there. And do not move on from that passage, that story, that, that anything in Scripture, if there's a question, until you found the answer. It might not be right there. It might be a few pages back. It might be in the Old Testament and you're reading in the New Testament. But the question is asked so that you can find the answer. Always answer the question. With that in mind, before we read the, the text this morning, would you bow your heads in prayer with me? Father God, I don't ever apologize for praying so much. Not to say that I pray without ceasing as I should, but I'm saying we, we've prayed probably 10 times in this service already. But, but Lord, I want to make sure that every heart is geared toward you. There's a lot of excitement and energy in this place. and It's, it's palpable. It's tangible. And Lord, I don't want to take that away. I don't want to push it out the back door. But I believe that there is chaos in some hearts and minds here today. And I'm asking God that you would quiet that storm. You would help us to catch our breath just long enough to hear your whisper. And that, Lord, you would speak to us from your word. Challenge us, renew us, restore us, heal us. Whatever it is your purpose is for us today, may we find it and may we respond, as Pastor said. And we commit every moment of this to you in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. With that being said, Matthew chapter 14, it should be on the screen behind me if you don't have your Bible. I want to start in verse 22. It says, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. If you're taking notes today, our first point is this. When storms come in life, respond like Jesus. When storms come in life, respond like Jesus. Here at the beginning of our text, Jesus is dismissing the crowd, but also his disciples. He needs some time alone, not because he's sick of them, not because he's sick of the people, but because he had a habit. If you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John through over and over, you'll find this. Many times Jesus would say he withdrew to a solitary place. He went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. That was Jesus' habit. His disciples were familiar with it. The crowds were familiar with it. They just didn't like it. Jesus himself needed time with his Father. 
So he would often take these, these moments, these few hours, and he would go up by himself and just pray and just talk with his father. It didn't bother the disciples because that happened before, and they get in the boat, he dismisses the crowd. And then the storm comes. The boat's being rocked. It's threatening to be capsized. The disciples are a considerable distance from land, and Jesus is praying. But we need to understand, again, context matters here. Jesus was right by the shore of the Sea of Galilee. His disciples were out on the water in the boat where he'd sent them. But Jesus is still right there. Jesus is still in the storm, even though he's not with his disciples directly. So as he's praying, the wind begins to blow. And we haven't read it just yet, but if you know the story, you know what he did. He's praying, the storm comes up, and what does Jesus do? He stops praying. Now, I will never stand up in front of a group of people and tell you to not pray. But I do believe there is a time to stop praying. And because when storms of life come, we need to respond like Jesus. One thing I've I've discovered as I read the Bible is there's not a promise in Scripture that says God will take us out of every storm. Never did he ever say, once you put your faith in me, you will never have another storm come your way. It's not there. Jesus actually said it. We talked about it a few times over the last few months. John 16, 33, Jesus said, in this life, you will have trouble. In this life, you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. What I do find in scripture is that God promises the storms will come. You say, well, that's awfully cruel. Well, it's because we live in a broken world. God didn't break the world. We did. He gave us his perfect creation, and we threw it on the ground and smashed it. And he has spent every moment of human history putting it back together. But if he were to take, every, every, take us out of every storm in life, he'd have to take us to be with him. And the job's not over yet. There is still work to be done. There is still a great commission at our feet that we should pick up and take out into the world. So he can't take us out. Not yet. So he does not promise that no storms will come. He promises they will. What he promises is that he will be with us in the storm. I'll never leave you or forsake you. The friend that sticks closer than a brother. It's all there. So Jesus was praying when the storm came, and he stopped praying to do what? To go be with his followers to go be with his friends. There's an interesting series of events here that I think we cannot afford to ignore. When the storm came, Jesus was ready, not because he's Jesus, but because he'd already been praying. He wasn't surprised. He wasn't afraid. He wasn't pushed back on his back with no idea what to do. He'd already prayed. So we should be in the habit, like Jesus, of already being prayed up so that when the storm comes, as we should expect it to, We are ready to get up off of our knees and go and be Jesus to someone in the storm that doesn't have him. My brother is a pastor of a church in Kentucky, and they have a theme this year that they're trying to to really enforce and and keep in the front of their minds. It's, It's centered around prayer. And they say this all the time. He and I were talking about this just a few weeks ago. He said, we we say every chance we get that we pray first, we pray again, and we pray until. Right? That's, that's pretty basic, and I love it. We pray first, we pray again, and we pray until. We should be a people who are ready because we're already prayed up. 
When the storms come, we're not surprised. We're not overwhelmed. Our world doesn't fall apart because like Jesus, we respond like Jesus, and we are a people who have a habit of continually being in prayer. Because when the storms come, it's not just that they come against my life. It's not just that they rock my family's boat. Everybody has storms, but not everybody knows Jesus. So I know how, how difficult and how stressful and how overwhelming it can be to go through the storms of life knowing that Jesus is right by my side. Can you imagine the fear, the turmoil, the stress, the anxiety that threatens to, uh, to topple your life if you don't know that Jesus is there with you? And Jesus, when the storm came against him, he made sure his friends were not alone. Did he stop the storm before he walked on the water? No. He went to be with his friends. And when storms of life come, we need to respond like Jesus. Secondly, answer the right question. I titled this morning's message, just as a way to keep my, my focus, The Test of Faith. And we're about to read about a profound test of faith. And I want to make sure that we don't miss the point. We have to answer the right question. Go back to Matthew 14, back to verse 25. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. There was a question that we just read. There was a conversation that took place. And we need to understand who was it that asked the question. It was not Peter. Peter made a statement. He didn't ask a question. He said, I see this, and here's what I want to do. Here's what I want to happen. It was Jesus who asked the question. Anyone who can walk on water and calm a storm has the right to ask me a question. What Peter said was, Lord, if it's you. That doesn't sound like faith to me. And this is my problem with stories like this. I love talking about Jesus water, walking on the water. I was driving to church this morning in my truck by myself listening to my Southern Gospel music because that's how I get myself hyped to preach. Nothing like Gold City and the Gaither Vocal Band to get your engine running, you know? <laughs> and one of the songs I listened to was called Water Walking God. And, man, I was just getting after it. Man, I, was, I don't bob my head like that. I don't know why I do that. <laughs> I do move around, and people look at me when they drive by. But I love singing about it. I love talking about this story. But so many times when we read it, when we study it, when we talk about it, we want to look at Peter like, well, he was the only one that got out of the boat. We should be like Peter. Did you hear what he said? He looks across the water in the middle of this storm, and help is on the way. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. I'm right here. 
And Peter doesn't look across the water and say, I believe. Now tell me to come be with you. He doesn't say, don't worry, guys, it's Jesus. We're going to be all right. He says, Lord, if it is you, prove it. That's what that means. You say that you are Jesus, and Jesus would tell me that I could walk on the water out to him and be with him. So, Lord, you say it's you, and if it is you, here's what I want you to do so that I can know. Which is why later Jesus could ask him, why did you doubt? And there's the question. That's the test of faith. And I told you before that that context is key. What happened right before Jesus put his disciples in the boat? Anybody know? He fed the 5,000. You remember the story. And if you don't, let me tell you what happened. The crowd that Jesus dismissed was 5,000 men strong, which represented probably 5,000 families. So Jesus had fed not just 5,000 people, but 5,000 men, their wives, and their children. Some scholars conservatively estimate he fed 25,000 people in a moment with a meager offering, five little loaves of unleavened bread and two small fish. And what did his disciples do before they they got on the boat to to leave? They put a a basket on their back. They walked around and they picked up 12 full baskets, each, one, one each of them. They put it in the boat and they got in the water. So imagine this. Peter is standing in the boat in the storm looking across at Jesus and probably has to kick a basket of leftover miracle out of the way. And looks across the water at the one who had just fed the multitude and is standing on the waves and says, I don't know. He looks familiar. But it could just be a ghost. Do you understand why Jesus would look at him and say, what business do you have not believing in me yet? What am I going to have to do, Jesus is thinking, to make you understand I am who I say that I am? I just fed a couple thousand people with nothing, and you were there. You've got the miracle right at your feet. I said with my own mouth, it's me, and yet you still doubted after I let you walk on the water. Jesus is not some mild-mannered, soft-speaking He's angry in this moment. You have to understand. Look at the context. I just did all of this. What is going on with your faith? Why did you doubt? And I have a really hard time stopping right there because if I look at Peter and I want to bash him, I better be willing to look in the mirror at myself. My wife and I yesterday, we had some time by ourselves in the car and I was frustrated about some things, and I had to stop myself because I was letting my, my anger get the best of me. And I just started to recount all the things that God's done just in the last eight, nine months and how he's provided, how he's turned the course, how he's, he's, he's given everything so much more than we could have ever asked because it's so easy to forget what God has done when the next storm comes, when the next crisis hits us in the face. We look across the water and and we forget that the miracle is still in the boat with us of the last time he took care of us. And we're just not sure he can do it again. I'm not pointing my finger because I'm, I'm, that's me. But we can't have faith and a short-term memory. You can't. 
Because when the next storm comes, your faith will disappear because you'll forget. We have to be a people who remember all that God has done. Has he taken away every problem? Mm -mm. But he's taken care of some. And when we get to heaven, we'll realize he's already taken care of it all. And while we wait, Pastor, we learn in the waiting, as you said this morning. And one of the things we can learn over and over and over and over is that he's right there with us. What business do I ever have to doubt my Savior? Is he going to do it exactly like I think he will? Probably not. What happens when you start to pray for your marriage to get stronger and it feels like it gets weaker? What happens when you start to pray, God, would you bless my finances, and then you lose your job? What happens when you pray for that sick loved one and they start to not feel so good the next day? What happens, church, when we come to church on a Sunday morning and we don't get the goosebumps? Did he leave us? Is the revival over? No. Your enemy, the devil, will love for nothing more than for some crisis to arise, some question to arise in your heart and mind, and you start to think, did I miss him? Did he leave me? I promise you, friend, his word says he's right there. If you want to know why we encourage you to read the Bible over and over and over and over, it's because that is what will sustain you when you can't feel him. That is what you cling to when, when your mind and your body start to play tricks on you. The Bible says the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, and his promises through all generations. Isaiah 59, 19 says, So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west, his glory from the rising of the sun. And when the enemy shall lift up a standard against, or, or come against you like a flood, the Lord will lift up a standard against him. Those are the promises of God. That's the truth of God's word. No matter what happens, no matter what crisis hits you, he's right there. So why would you, I, anybody else that's seen him do it, why would we ever doubt but how easy is it to fail the test of faith? I went to Bible college. I graduated a longer time ago than I'm willing to admit. I'm getting old. I'm not as old as Joe. <laughs> I like to remind him of that because he's one of my good friends. But when I was in college, my first year, my first semester, my brother and I had a theology class together. I think I might have mentioned this before. He got a 98 on that test. And I didn't. I got, I remember, I never forget it. I was, I nearly threw up. It was, it's awful of me to say that, but it's the truth. I got a 53. And I remember I went back to my dorm and after I stopped crying, <laughs> that's the truth. I can still see it now looking at that paper. Just, I'm so sorry. I'm never going to be a preacher. And, <laughs> and look at me now. Um, <laughs> I, I picked up my cell phone and I called my mom and I apologized to her. You're spending all this money and I'm failing the test. She's like, well, how'd Tyler do? I was like, we're not talking about him. <laughs> it's the truth. I'm sure he'll call you to gloat later. Um, yeah. And you know what I didn't get to do on that test? I didn't get to redo it. I didn't get to take the test over. I'm, I barely passed the class, but I didn't get to take that test over. That 53 is probably still on my record somewhere. But what I love about God is we, we, we find ourselves constantly going through these tests of faith. And not because God's cruel and, and wants to show how much we don't know. Because point number three, God loves to give second chances. I don't know what it is about being an adult that's so hard. 
It's kind of hard to pin your, put, put that list on paper and, and exhaust it. One of the things is, I, I thought when I got older that it would all just make sense and you'd figure out how to handle everything. And that doesn't work. I, so, so many times I, I look around and I think, man, I, I just feel like such a failure. I thought by now I'd be further ahead. I thought by now I'd be a better parent. I thought by now I would be a better husband. I thought by now I, there, it, would be, it wouldn't be like this. And I'm so thankful Every time I fail, every time I fall on my face, I serve a God who loves to give second chances. Look back at the text with me if you would. Matthew 14, just one more verse. Matthew 14, 33. Jesus and Peter get back into the boat. It says, Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Truly, you are the Son of God. Everything God has ever done since we broke his creation has been aiming for a moment like this. He wants everyone to see his son Jesus for who he is. Every mistake, every success, every mountaintop, every valley, every moment, not one has been wasted in your life, mine, or anybody else's. His goal has always been to turn every eye to Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith, the one sent from heaven, the firstborn of all creation, slain before the foundation of the world. He is the one that we need, and God is desperately working to turn every eye to his son, Jesus. And here we have 11 men in a boat, at least, if not a few women and a few other ministry team members. They see Jesus and Peter get back in the boat, and they look at the Savior, and they say, truly, you are the Son of God. A faith statement, if I ever heard one. Forget Peter. Because based on this series of events and everything we've just read that has happened, I'm not entirely sure he was one of the ones worshiping Jesus in that moment. He had just been on a roller coaster of a day. Think about it. Gets up that morning and the crowd gathers and he watches and helps distribute a meal to thousands of people and then gathers up the leftovers. Mountaintop experience. Only a few people got to be a part of that ministry moment. They get in the boat, and the storm comes up, and he fears for his life. Back to the valley. Looks across the water. Here comes Jesus. Let me walk out to you, mountaintop experience. And then he begins to sink and fears for his life again and almost drowns, if not for Jesus saving him. And his Savior, his Lord, his rabbi, his man, looks at him and says, why did you doubt me? You have little faith, and right back to the valley he goes. He failed the test, but it wasn't the last time he got to take it. Because context is key. Fast forward through Matthew 15 to Matthew 16. Just maybe one page over in your Bible. And we are given an inside look at Peter's second chance. One of the most often quoted passages in all of Scripture, Matthew 16, 13 through 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah the Son of the living God. 
That's a faith statement if I've ever heard one. And the one who maybe just a few days before had failed the test of faith is given another opportunity. Jesus is walking along. He's in a different part of the country. He's just talking to his friends, walking along, probably getting ready for his next sermon or his next ministry event. And just out of the blue, he says, you know, who, who do people say that I am? What are you hearing from the people as you talk to them? Oh, some say this, and some say you sound an awful lot like that guy. and It just kind of hangs in the air. And now I would never put words in God's mouth. I'm not trying to do that, but I can't help but think. Because he was the one that responded. Jesus stopped dead in his tracks and turned and looked at Peter in the face. Remember, he's the one that answered. Who do you say that I am? It doesn't matter what everybody else is talking about on the news. It doesn't matter what you hear rumored and whispered in the streets. My follower, my friend, who is it that you say I am? When people ask you who Jesus is, what's the first thing that comes to mind? That's the question being asked by Jesus to his followers that day. And Peter didn't hesitate. You are the Messiah, the sent one, the anointed one, the one we've been looking for all along. You are the son of God. He got it right. He passed the test. No more doubt. No more question. It was a bumpy road to get to that point, but he got there. And we stopped reading, but after this, Jesus goes on to say, yeah, that's it. And you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The one who failed the test was the one who heard the promise first, that it's people like you, Peter, not just you, Peter, but one just like you, and anyone who believes just like you are going to become a body of believers that is so united and is so strong and so empowered that the very gates of hell can't knock it down. That it starts, it starts, listen, by passing the test of faith. Who do you say Jesus is? And it's easy to come in on Sunday morning and sing these songs. Our worship team does a phenomenal job. And we feel the hype, we feel the energy, we feel the excitement. And we can sing about who Jesus is. And if you're anything like me, you go home and you start counting down the hours until your alarm clock goes off on Monday morning. And life starts again. The problems are there. The stressors are there. The questions are there. You know who else is there? Jesus. It's Jesus. Do you want to know what the real test of faith is? It's not if you can walk on water. It's not if you can heal the sick and raise the dead. I believe that we can. I believe we can see God do those things, and I'm not knocking it. Please hear my heart on this. Those are not tests of faith. They're just signs and evidence that God is who he says he is. They ain't got nothing to do with me or you. That's just God doing what God does. And what an honor and privilege it is to be a part of it. The real test of faith is when the storm comes. Do we respond like Jesus? Are we ready to respond like Jesus because we've already been in our prayer closet and we've been with Jesus? And I'm not surprised when the storm comes because I've already been with the one who's going to walk me through the storm. And the real test of faith goes on. When somebody looks at me in my life, do they see Jesus or not? Do they hear Jesus or not coming out of my mouth? Because that is what answers the question, who do I say Jesus is? 
And that's the test of faith. Oh, well, I'm in trouble. I failed that test a few too many times. I got frustrated and I got carried away and I went back to my old life. Something bad happened and I fell off the wagon, Charles. I failed the test. I ruined my witness. I walked away from Jesus. Friends, our God loves to give second chances. But you don't know what happened to me. You don't know what I've been through. I don't. But I know that Jesus does. I know that while you were going through it and while it happened and while those hurtful things were being said and while you were making those bad decisions, I know that I know that I know he was right there. Oh, God wouldn't be with me in my sin. While you were still a sinner, he died on the cross for you. What makes you think he'll leave you when you're in the pit? He went to the pit before you did, so you would never have to go there. But while I was laying in the pit, he was right there beside me. He has not ever left you for a moment. So what business do we have to doubt? He is who he says that he is. And I promise you this morning, friend, he is right here, ready for you. I'm going to invite, if I could, the worship team to come back up here to be with me. And you don't have to play Southern Gospel music unless you want to. I have a few suggestions. Um, This tank is still here this morning, and I'm so glad that it is. Last week, if you weren't here, man, you missed it. I don't say that to be mean, but it was powerful. Joe has said it once if he said it a thousand times. I've not had something impact me that way other than when I got saved. It was life-changing just to watch. I can't imagine what it was like to get in the water. There's nothing magical or mystical about this. I just want to make that clear. And I think those who were baptized would agree with this anyway. There's nothing that, that happens when I go in the water other than this. I, I've, I go in to get baptized, and I'll go into the water one way, I come out another. It's a sign of what I've already done inside. Joe, you said it a hundred times last week too. I love you. You hit that over and over. It's an outward sign of an inner transformation. Did I get it right? The inner transformation happens when you make the decision to follow Jesus. When you pass the test of faith. And this morning, you might have gotten up and decided to come to church because that's just what you always do. Or because you heard that somebody in your family is getting baptized or, or somebody drug you here against your will. I don't know. You weren't planning on getting baptized, but neither were 36 other people last Sunday. And they did it anyway. We have a towel for you. And when we run out, we have blankets, right, Misty? <laughs> I just, I want that to not be the question you answer today. Am I ready to get baptized or not? Do I have dry clothes or not? Your seats in your car will dry. They will. That's not, that shouldn't be what keeps you from getting baptized this morning. Because we are going to baptize some folks. Some that weren't here last week. Some that just weren't quite ready to make the step last week. They want to do it today. They've made their decision. They've checked all the boxes on the test of faith saying, I believe, I believe, I believe, and here's how I'm going to prove it. You understand, God isn't the one that has to prove anything. He's already done that. He doesn't ask a lot from us. He does ask us to show it. 
It's a pretty simple thing to do. All you got to do is meet us up here at the tank and allow us the honor and the privilege of baptizing you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I'm I'm usually a a fairly private person. I don't ever want to embarrass anybody because I don't like to be embarrassed. I think you understand that. But what we're getting ready to do, there's nothing to be ashamed of. Because last week when, when everybody came forward to get baptized, it was a celebration. It wasn't a shaming. It wasn't a ridiculing. It wasn't a mocking. It was a celebration. So we're not going to bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. Because I want everybody to see who we can celebrate with. If you're on the fence in the test of faith and you're just not sure, I believe today is the day of salvation, as we've said for the past few weeks now. Make a choice. Pass the test. Because Jesus is here. I don't know what to do. It's easy. In just a moment, I'm going to invite anyone that wants to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior to show that by coming forward and being baptized. It's, it's that easy. No more questions, no more, no more stall tactics, just do you believe or not? Are you ready? Ready?